Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. Hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. Just me today. Hope you're having a good start to the year. Hope your New Year's resolution's going well. For me, the real start of the year is the the th- adrenalised thrill I get when the Australian Open tennis finally starts. So it was good to see that this week. And with a combination of that and the new series of The Traitors, I've, uh, I've enjoyed the start of the year. Today's episode is informed and inspired by something that I saw at a conference just uh, at the end of last year. And I was really taken with it. And and I just wanted to share it, really. I saw a presentation by Mark McGinn, who is a senior leader from Edelman, the, the PR company. And he was presenting about trust. And I was really taken with the importance of trust. And, and trust is actually one of the big themes for 2024 that I published in my trends deck that you might have seen and downloaded. Specifically, the the fact that trust is the basis for good company culture. And, and that was very much the, the substance of what Mark was presenting. He was talking about how increasingly in society there's a trust deficit. We don't trust governments as much as we used to. We don't trust, trust institutions as much as we used to. And interestingly, the... Our trust for companies is becoming more and more important. Specifically, he said that companies are just about the the biggest thing that any of us feel like we've got a stake in. And so as a result of that, we're increasingly expecting our chief execs to take a stand on things. We're expecting our chief execs to give perspectives on things. I did some work with a retail client in the middle of last year, and they said that increasingly 19-year-olds were asking their manager what the company policy was on the Ukraine situation or the the employees were asking their employers what the company thought about other political issues really intriguing something that I don't think we would have seen manifested in previous generations so this idea that we believe that that our company is the 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 biggest thing in our lives that we feel we have any control over speaks to some extent about the fact that we've become disenfranchised with politics anyway really interesting but what Mark's going to take you through is some of the substance that comes from an Edelman report on trust and I've put it in the show notes and I know that you know with these things you probably don't always get the time to read these things but I'd say if you do get the opportunity to click in and have a look at some of the detail I think it's got applications for all of us thinking about how organizations work one of the things I put out last week was the fact that the CEO pay gap is becoming bigger and bigger and one of the ways that that's impacting organizations is the fact that the CEO pay gap has gone from about 20x 20 times uh, about sort of 30 years ago 40 years ago 
Now it is closer to 350 times. What that means is that the average CEO pay is earning, the average CEO, FT250 CEO, is earning 350 times what the average employee is earning in that organisation. And what that does is it creates this sort of identity stratification. People no longer believe that the CEO is a reflection and manifestation of the people who work there. And it's destroying trust. So these themes of trust and how we can create trust are going to go to the heart of this discussion. I have to tell you, you know, I I don't want to just be a hype man for something that, but I really loved this discussion. I loved it when I saw Mark presenting it and I I loved it today. So I think you're going to get real value to this. The importance of trust in organisations, how how organisations can build trust and how trust is is the foundational part of good culture. Here's my discussion with Mark McGinn from Edelman. Mark, thank you so much for for having me here. And Pleasure. I wonder if you could kick off by just introducing who you are and what you do. Of course, yes. I'm Mark McGinn and I'm the Executive Director of Sustainability and Social Impact at Edelman in EMEA. Remind me who Edelman are and what do Edelman do? Absolutely. So Edelman are a very large strategic communications agency um, with the largest independent one in the world. Um, and we work with lots of uh, clients, lots of large corporate clients, but also with foundational partners and with governments um, to really ensure that we're understanding where people are at, but also how we can convey messages to them and that might lead to positive behaviour change. And our overall outcome is trying to drive trust between institutions in the world. And it was the subject of trust that really put me onto you. I, I mm. saw you present at an event that we were both at and you were talking about trust in the workplace uh, we, we just t- talked about societal trust actually but uh, do you want to sort of talk through the background of what that report is i've, yeah. I've included that report in the show notes but h- how how do you measure trust and why is this such an important report for edelman yes um well it's it's become kind of the centerpiece really for our approach to all, everything we do we've been looking at trust now for over 23 years which actually means we've We've asked about 25 million questions around for us in about 28 markets. We've also looked at about 150,000 employee reviews um, across companies to understand how that then manifests itself in place of work and my employer and how I feel about that. And we look at trust across four key institutions, which are business, media, NGOs and government. Um, and we look at the patterns between them, we look at how it shifts over time between these institutions and, and across the institutions themselves within them. We are living through an era of distrust, which is probably no shock to many of your listeners, I would say. Um, and we've seen a decline happening quite significantly over the last about five years. However, one of the exceptions to that is business, and business now remains the most trusted and the only trusted institution of those four. And within business, when we then ask people about their business, their employer, that is by far the most trusted institution now. Um, And one of the changes we've seen on that, it's not just that the others have performed badly, and government certainly has performed very badly in recent times, but it's also that business has always been regarded as being competent. So business is good at having ideas and very good at executing them. And I think that most people's experiences in their own life, they see that and they experience that. The difference that's really happened in recent times is that people's expectations 
that business is also solving societal problems has hugely increased. So the score they get for being ethical has jumped up dramatically um, and accelerated since COVID, where maybe business was seen as an institution that held many of the pillars of society together. And for most people, that was keeping me with a livelihood and perhaps an institution that was the first one I could go back to, the first one that was consistent, the first one maybe I felt safe in. Um, so we've seen that really lift up. And for my employer, hugely so. So for my employer, they actually perform a 62% higher on both competence and a slightly less, just around 60% higher on ethical behaviours than government. So they are held in this, as other institutions have fallen away, almost in the vacuum, my employer has stepped in to be the institution that we look at most and turn to most, um, and therefore it's become hugely trusted. And I was really struck by a really simple way that you expressed it. That you, I think you said that in our lives, our company is the biggest thing, or, mm. or the smallest big thing that we feel that we have influence over. Yeah, exactly. And I've, and I've witnessed this. I've witnessed a lot of us, even most people probably in office jobs aren't unionised, but... The, I witness when people talk about their jobs, they feel like they can lobby their organisation to do something. Or I've worked with a retail store and they said our average 19-year-old is asking what our company policy is on the Ukraine crisis or on the situation in Gaza. And it's really interesting that... That's that um, segmentation that you, you would have thought in the past, what does it matter what your company's philosophy on Gaza is? But people feel like they've got a stake in this body. I'm really Agreed. struck by that. Agree, Bruce. It, it, it feels like the large organisation or institution, they have a semblance of agency over. If I'm not happy, I can complain or I can raise an issue with my manager. If I'm really not happy, I can leave. And if I'm really happy, I can invest more time and effort and commit my future to a, a company, to the team I work with. Um, and, it, and maybe it's reflecting that for some of the other institutions, like government, they're feeling disenfranchised. They're feeling like they can't affect it. They can't control it. Their voice is unheard. Um, but for this institution and my employer, they are feeling a sense of control while also being aware that this institution is bigger than them and that the institution has an area of an, a semblance of influence in the world at large and that they're part of it. So my small actions are part of a bigger collective action which is impactful. That's really interesting then. The idea of control plays a part in trust. Mm. That what you seem to be saying there is that we feel like if we've got a stake in something or we've got a voice in something, if we're, we feel like we've got some agency, then our trust is yes. augmented by that. Is that right? Yeah, and that's why we find trust such a compelling measure for us to work towards because trust is a really dynamic relationship because in effect when I trust you I am taking a measured risk with you how do you I, define trust how, how you sort of how do you pin it down well we would take it you know it, it would be that I'm I it's forward-looking for starters reputation often is looking back on all things like accumulation of things I've experienced with you well trust is also saying of those things I've experienced with you how I now perceive you means I'm happy to almost take this calculated risk with you and whether that be I buy a car from you I think will keep my family safe or whether that be I'm going to invest the next five years of my life working for you because I think you're going to help me grow and be true to me and loyal to me there either way it's a kind of calculated dynamic relationship where you are deciding whether you believe in this organization or person or brand and you believe that the risks are outweighed by the benefits and that you feel that you understand them 
And when we, when we break into trying to understand the different measures of trust, how, how is it formed, um, we see there are kind of four key component parts. And this has been through looking at lots of academic papers on that and obviously our own research. And the first is ability. And this is a kind of a functional trust. So if you are um, any organisation or person who claim to do a thing, how good are you at delivering that? How good are you? How capable of you? How capable of you are building a car that works, for example? The second is dependability. It's more of a transactional trust. So is it consistent? Are all the cars you build safe and fast or always start? Does it always have the same experience? Or if I work for you, when I move between offices, is it the same culture I'm experiencing? Is a different manager giving me the same experience as my last manager? Or do I feel it's a quite a distinctly, quite frankly, this organization is disparate in its own culture and its own ways of working? The third element then is integrity. It's kind of a moral and ethical trust that the way you behave reflects the values you've promised me or shown me, and I'm seeing that in how you operate. And then the, the last is then purpose, and that is kind of societal and environmental trust about are you having an impact in the wider world, a positive impact in the wider world? Are you stepping into that task? And that, that last pillar, especially in the place of work, has probably had one of the most dramatic changes in recent times um, that you referenced earlier, actually, where there is an expectation that my employer will step into that ask about what is our role in society? What are we doing to help improve some of the problems? Not all of them, but some of them. And that is definitely a um, change in the employer-employee relationship, that's for sure. Some of these, Adam Grant did some wonderful work. Which he looked at people's pride in their employers as predictor of how engaged they were with their jobs and how, effectively, if there was someone was, you know, if you're going to be illustrative, you know, how proud someone was to wear t the T-shirt was a good predictor of how they engaged they were in their job. And, and it strikes me that pride in that sense is pretty synonymous with trust you're describing here. If yeah. people feel like their company's doing a good job, there's high integrity, if they feel like the company's got purpose, it's got high ability and dependent... Yeah. It strikes me that's synonymous with his research and yes. finding there. Yeah, absolutely right. And I guess that pride also is that going forward, again, it's forward projection as well, I think they'll also be good. I also think they're going to let me down um, because you'd be nervous to feel proud about something which may come back and bite you. So I think I agree entirely that they are both dynamic measures to look at about how well are we performing. Um, and I think pride is an excellent way of understanding how well we're really um, convincing people of our own performance, our own values, our own behaviours. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd agree those are quite tightly closed together. And what are the signals of trust? Because you've given some lovely ones there, you know, the capabilities of the organisation, the dependability of the organisation. But I guess there's some things about the way we're treated by organisations that have changed in the last three or four years. And probably one of the most evident ones is hybrid working and yeah. whether your boss thinks that if they can't see you, you're still doing your job adequately. Yes. Do you consider that... Is that something that contributes to the sense of tr trust that organisations create? Yeah. Um, I think you, you, you're absolutely right to say that in the, the hybrid working environment, there is a, an implicit growth in the, the um, requirement and the 
desire on both sides for trust because it is trust-based. You know, you, I may not have some of the old measures I can, could feel like I had control over, which is just seeing you at a desk. Um, and of course, we all know that's irrelevant now because you don't need those measures. It's like the outcomes and the outputs that are important. Um, and we can see where they are. We can measure them in different ways. But with that, there is trust on both sides that if I'm working from home, you don't leave me high and dry and you don't leave me on my own and you're still conscious that I'm here. I'm a value part of the team. If I'm not necessarily visible, I'm not overlooked. Um, there's plenty of data that shows the importance of psychological safety in the workplace that is, of course, in the actual building, but also in, if I'm a hybrid worker, um, that I am also not left. And loneliness is certainly a big issue. Um, and the ailments of that, both mentally and physically, we can see coming through at great cost to employers. Um, and, then the, and then some of the other aspects, I think, is, tr is also the other way around, which is if we are going to imbue trust in our employees, I think our physical spaces have to be as much an area of inspiration and values as they are of productivity and growth. And we have to demonstrate those, that, that new desire for purpose and integrity at the heart of why I'm going to work for somebody or why I'm going to stay working for someone too needs to be felt when they go into the physical workspace um, and needs to be expressed in different ways. And we know that many, many employees expect their leadership to step forward on social issues. More than ever before, about 8 in 10 expect CEOs to stand up on societal issues. But we also know the same number expect that as, a, as an employee that they will be given the means to also step into the issue with their employer. That it won't just be done from above. There'll be some sort of mechanics where I can take part, I can contribute, I can do something meaningful going forward. And we certainly see that more so with the younger generation, with Gen Z in particular, but also millennials, that that is an expectation of what a job offer has in it. Um, and with it, if you deliver against it, we know it drives loyalty, it drives retention. So I think that, that some of the signals of what might earn trust need to be a bit more explicit to employees as well. When the report looks at societal level issues, it categorises the US as being as manifesting high polarisation and it puts the UK amongst six other countries as at risk of high polarisation. And one of the signals that indicate whether you're in that direction is this economic stratification of trust mm. that... When you look at quadrants, so let's separate the economy into quadrants of earnings, um, what the UK demonstrates is that these high trust in institutions, in government, in companies, amongst high-earning people, mm. and significantly lower trust, I think mm. the numbers are 51, 35, amongst people in the lower quadrant. Yeah. And so you've got this stratification where people who feel like the system is failing them yeah. don't trust institutions in the same way and that creates this high risk of polarisation. I wonder to what extent that ha also happens inside organisations. Do we see that lower working, lower earning workers are less trusting of organisations and leaders than maybe people who are in the management yes. tier? Um, I think there is a danger that people at the top can drink their own Kool-Aid and like to hear what each other are saying to each other. Um, and of course, the best management teams are very astute about making sure they have programs, reverse mentoring, other things that make sure they're hearing voices that are not just management voices. And I think that the kind of the inequalities that are society at large, and you know, which are issues we all have to face into, are manifesting in the workplace too. And that can lead to 
distrust if it feels like it's, you know, they're manifest, they're obvious, it's clear. Or if it feels like they're not like me. There is a separation. I think many organisations manage it very well where people feel like the management are, we are of the same organisation, they do a certain job, I do another job, and we are pulling in the same direction. And we, you know, we're clear about the, how the behaviours are. I think it's probably more important that there is consistency of the values and how those are expressed through behaviours are holding people to account on those behaviours that would build trust or lose trust than perhaps how people are paid. I think that would be where um, there'd be most harm done to trust if it feels like certain people are not held to account or certain people are not held to the same standards that others are asked to meet. Right, because one of the things we, you and I were talking before we started was about the growing CEO pay gap and this notion that in... 1970, the CEO pay gap was that the average CEO earned 20 times the average, the yeah. mean salary inside their organisations. In for UK FT 250 companies now, I think they earn 350 times. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Amazon and organisations, global organisations, is 7,000 times higher than the average. And one of the things that has been observed is that because Typically, I think you hinted at it there, when we see leaders as someone who embodies what the average person who works here looks like, yeah. when they feel like one of us, yeah. when, when they feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy, yeah. he's like, okay, maybe a, a stride or two more capable than yeah. one or two of us, but that person looks and feels like the people who work here. When that's severed, that we no longer have the same degree of identification with that person. And I wonder if that then serves to undermine trust and, and might reflect the sort of economic yeah. stratification of, of trust. I, I mean, I, I think that for society at large, it's not all societies, of course, but certainly in many developed societies, um, that huge growth in inequality across society through wage, through accumulation of wealth and other, other means, not just wages, is a really important issue we need to address because it underpins a lot of, um, you've mentioned some certain polarisation in society that we see happening. There's no doubt, it's not, obviously not the only thing, but it's certainly one of the things that's causing um, ill feeling, you know, it's extreme cases of unrest, um, and a sense of separation, a sense of perhaps them and us, or a sense of some people being living in a slightly different world or reality, to what I'm experiencing. Um, and that is something that we collectively need to address because it will damage trust. And to be clear, we, we all need is to, all institutions to be trusted. We all will benefit. None of us want any of them to be scoring poorly. Mm. We, none of us want any of them to be underperforming. Um, institutions are so important for us to maintain stability. And I know before we started, Bruce, we were talking about the kind of the turmoil in the world at the moment, more broadly on the geopolitical level. And um, we, we absolutely all want our institutions to be stood up well. You know, imagine a, a four-leg table. We don't want three of those legs to be chopped half down, the whole thing to be at an angle. That's an, that is not great for anyone. Um, so I think that there is a danger, you're absolutely right, that they can be separated. But I think as well, the in, how the, the individual in that role behaves you know, thinking about those four metrics, you know, are they behaving ethically with integrity? Are they maintaining dependability around the values they've told the, the company they want to run the company by? Um, is it, uh, yeah, are they maintaining, are they showing competence to make sure the company continues to be able to do its core function? And lastly, you know, do they bring through, with real, you know, 
genuine commitment and genuine thought, that purpose side, which is a new expectation on them. I think if those leaders are meeting those requirements, they probably can continue to maintain the trust of their you know, employees. I think it's obviously up to individuals to decide what feels like a fair wage. Um, and for the board and for various people to decide that. But I think, you know, speaking personally, the issue of growing inequality is something that we all need to address. It's really interesting, um, the, the idea that, I guess simplistically, we all want to perceive ourselves as the goodies. Yes. We all want to be the goodies. Yes. And, and the one thing that comes out in the research is that I think 70% of people want their companies to pay a fair amount of corporation tax. Yeah. Uh, people want their organisation to behave properly when it comes to, to the laws and, and regulations. And there's a piece of work in the US looking at ethics of organisations and whether the ethics of organisations held up when the leaders in those organisations had um, drink-driving convictions. And so, broadly, organisations where the bosses had drink-driving convictions, and I guess would have been a degree public on that, um, generally exhibited lower ethical standards. It's really interesting. So, two, two levels. Firstly, we want our organisations to behave in ethical yeah. ways. Yeah. But when our organisations and the leaders don't model ethics, yeah. it seems to have this corrupting impact on the whole organisation. Yes. Yes, I mean, I don't think that study, but what you're describing sounds like it makes a whole lot of sense. And, you know, we all know the hackneyed old phrase, you know, the fish rots from the head. And the way you behave is going to have far more impact than the words you might choose to put in an email or the speech you give. If people around you seeing, see you behaving one way, then they all give, it either gives me permission space or it's actually what behavior you want me to model. So if a leader is choosing to, you know, one of those four pillars was ethical behavior to just diverge from that, it would be no surprise that with time, you have an organization which does similar. And I think we all know plenty of those in recent times that we could think about, which demonstrates how that behavior gets modeled, it gets rolled through, it changes the culture, and once you change the culture, you then change how it operates. And um, so I think, uh, so I don't know the study, but I, I can believe its yeah. findings, yeah. One of the things, um, when the report, and like I say, it's, it's in the show notes, but when the report goes through things that contribute to societal level trust, one of the things that I think is the fourth factor is that um, when we shift from shared m communication messages to something closer to echo chambers, then what it does, it serves to segment us so there's, there's much less overlap. And one of the, the ripple effects of that is that, you know, our whole conversation here has been about trust and hierarchy, actually, yeah. to some extent. Yeah. But it extends beyond that. 20% of people now say that they would be willing to work with people that they strongly disagree their opinions yeah. of. Yeah. And, you know, so, so I'll say that in a better way. 20% uh, of people now say they would be willing to work with someone that they strongly disagreed with. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing. It's like we, we're sort of ending up with a strange situation where we're self-selecting and we don't want to be around people who disagree with us. And to some extent, those disagreements are about the melting pot of life. The, I remember I worked in one organisation where someone came and spoke to me and said, look, you know, I'm a conservative Christian 
and I feel like my perspectives yeah. are not valued because there's a lot of atheistic liberals here. Yeah. And I feel like my perspective, if anything, is ridiculed. Yeah. Really interesting, you know, like yeah. the, the sense that we find our own position to be, we anchor our perspectives around our own position, seeing us as the centre. Yes. And so people on the extremes, we don't necessarily want to engage with them. Yes. So trust seems to extend beyond hierarchy. And I just wonder if you'd give me a view of how you would seek an organisation to deal with that. I mean, it's a very, very important point you raised, Bruce, and a really important challenge, is that um, we're in there, there are so many parts to it, which is things like information hygiene. It's a skill people need to get better at now. You know, we, we people really, there's so much information that is now given to us constantly. And we're not very good sifting it we're not very good at interrogating it why has that person said that why, what, why, who may be the person who funded that why has it gone out now and why is it in this place um, and maybe we prefer, in the past when there was slightly less information we were slightly more able to cope with the volume and much of that information went through editorial control that, that need for educate, information hygiene was better to manage we're not so good at it secondly there's that culture now of black and white and that, that it's right and wrong. And of course, anyone who's experienced much of the world knows that's not how the world is. And often it's the gray area where we're actually living. That's where the reality is. And actually that's where the solutions are because there's gonna to have to be a bit of compromise on both sides and then we'll get to a better place. And then to get there requires everyone to of course listen. And that perception that everyone has to agree is also a little bit naive because we don't want everything to be the same. That isn't the aim. The aim is we want diverse opinions. We want diverse points of view. We want diverse thinking. And then we want a safe environment where those can be heard and discussed. And then in a mature way, we can then gather what's the right choice of action in this context and on this issue and on this subject and in this, with this person. And it may not have been what I first thought, but now I realize that this is the right thing to do. But that requires us all to be open, and it requires something which we're all getting quite bad at, which is listening a hell of a lot more. Um, and that discourse, that room for discourse, um, needs to be, or the value of it, needs to be, I think, probably reignited. I think the level of public discourse has dropped very low, and I think that that value in properly evaluating ideas, properly thinking about the different approaches to this problem or different points of view um, needs to be something that all of us cherish a little bit more and give room for. Um, and we need to challenge ourselves to be comfortable in the uncomfortable because you will sometimes then be in groups that may feel like I'm the outsider. You may sometimes be in groups where you feel like my views are not aligned to everyone else's. But you should still feel comfortable to express them. You should feel comfortable to share them and you should do so in a way which is respectful of the others in that group too. Um, and I think it's really important that we get there because I think then we build trust because then we understand everyone's valued. We also probably collectively get to better decisions more often. Um, and it feels like it's the right thing to do from people person to person. Um, so, I, so I'd love to see a lot more of the discourse and the conversation um, and a lot less of the cancelling. Right. How do you navigate it? How, what, what advice would you give for leadership groups? 
because l- let me think of the area that's a really testy area to even discuss, but the area that's really upset so many groups of people on my social media in the last three months has been the Gaza, Israel, Palestine yeah. thing. And how would an organisation seek to respect different identity groups, stand for something trustworthy and navigate something of such complexity? Because a lot of people would say, just steer clear of that. Yeah. Steer clear of test issues. And I don't, mean, I, don't, I don't need you to go into the specifics yeah. of that issue. But when you've got something which is so febrile, how, do you, how would an organisation think about planting its own flag in a space as complicated as that? Mm. And there are plenty of complicated, and that's you know, particularly relevant this time we're talking and now, Bruce, but um, there are others like that, and there will always be one like that. But there are other topics as well, whether it be about gender. Whether mm. about... So I think, first of all, the organisation has to pause and not rush, because these are important topics... To, to society and they're important topics to many individuals that you work with, that are in your supply chain, that may be your customers, um, that you need to think about. And to do that, you need to listen. So it may, you may not, as a leader, have personal experience in that space or any points of view. Or you may have a very distinct point of view as an individual, but that may not be the right thing for your organisation. So you need to stop and listen to what is the situation at hand? What are we talking about? Do I understand it? And can I talk to people who will no doubt know more than I do, and preferably people who've got first-hand experience of that topic. I would then suggest the next question to ask yourselves is, do we have a role to play as an organisation, and what is that role? Can we be additive to the solution at all? Can we be helpful in um, raising a voice or putting forward an outcome? Or do we just need to support people who are affected by this issue? And I think understanding the role you play as an organisation is really critical before you then decide what you might say. And then when you decide what you're going to say, then be equally thoughtful about who delivers that message, who's the right person to deliver that message, and probably where. You know, you mentioned social media. For so many of these topics, it may require that intricacy of conversation, of debate, of discourse. That doesn't work very well on social media often. And so you need to choosing where you may then talk about that may give you the chance to explain fully your thinking, your reason why you're turning up or not turning up. Um, uh, so I, I just think that, that people need to pause, listen, be thoughtful about the role they can play, and then be thoughtful about how they're going to play that role. Um, and then explain. Explain whether you do or you don't, but explain that you've, you've thought about it and you've engaged with it. Sort of wrapping up now, as someone who finds yourself immersed in this stuff, yeah. such fascinating stuff, is there anything that you've seen that you've seen organisations that have really set the high watermark for doing this stuff well, for, for building trust, for maybe trust with customers, trust with employees? Where do you look and you see people who are taking the lead on this? Yeah. I, d- I do lots of work in sustainability. And um, I also have got kids. And so I did, recently I saw Lego make an announcement that was an, a difficult announcement for people to, any organisation to make. And what they were announcing was one of their flagship sustainability initiatives, which was to get, create a plastic-free brick. Obviously, it's their core product. Um, it hadn't worked. The innovation they'd been testing hadn't worked. So in, 
in, in kind of strict corporate terms where you have lots of metrics and goals and targets, arguably that's a failure. But with the way they communicated it was super mature that actually resulted in a growth of trust, I would argue. Because they then went out to explain that it hasn't worked. What we were hoping for and we told you we're going to try and do and we're going to do, we can't do. But this is what we've learned. And this is why it didn't work. And this is why we're changing tack into this direction. And these are the reasons why we've done this from a sustainability perspective. And here are things we've learned that other people may be able to learn from as they're trying to take on this task too. And so it was a really effective bit of corporate communications really, but also to their own people where they were just treating everyone like adults. Um, they were explaining what the outcomes were, but also what the workings were. And in doing so, they were then treated by adults, by most of the people who came across that update. Um, they weren't berated for failing. People thanked them for sharing the learning so that others could do better and move further faster. Um, and I think that was a really lovely example of humility, but also treating all audiences themselves, their own employees included, with the kind of respect they're owed to see they may want to know more, they may want to find out more. And they did so in just the right tone. So I think that was a really nice one for me recently. Um, and maybe it's like my mind as I broke my feet walking over my children's Lego bricks. Really interesting one that is because I worked in a, I used to work in a tech organisation and uh, our ch chief exec was very fond of making sure that we did the right thing irrespective of consequence. So one of the, one of the ways that this came to bear was that at one stage we had a data leak conceivably a whole load of tens of millions of people could have had their passwords accessed and so we had something. Yeah. And there was, a real, there was a real anxiety that releasing it to Wall Street was going to cause a dip in the, the stock price. And so there was a lot of people internally debating all of this. Yeah. And when it eventually reached the chief exec's desk, you know, 24 hours later, not a long time, he said, oh, well, the right thing to do is announce it straight away. So he announced it straight away. Uh, everyone was prepared for sort of this yeah. implosion. And in fact, the response was really positive. Yeah. The next time something happened, and I'm talking 12 months later, everyone said, well, the right thing to do now is to announce it straight away. And we announced it straight away. And it, it developed this slight muscle memory. It's really interesting because some of the press coverage at the time was far more excoriating. It was sort of like, you know, this data leak. Yeah. And actually one of the journalistic pushbacks was this organisation... Twitter actually, was uh, they're leading the way in being transparent. And if we criticise them for being transparent, there's no incentive for other organisations to do anything other than obfuscate and, and disguise these things. But it was really interesting, two things. Firstly, often revealing the truth makes everyone inside the organisation feel prouder. Yes. It makes them realise that our response to this is we do the right thing. Yes. And separately... This, there's just a, a sense that when you don't feel like you're spinning and you're doing PR, you hold your head higher and, and it becomes a habit. It's, yeah. It was just really, really interesting. I loved that Lego no, example as well. That's exactly right, Bruce. And we, like our study, when we looked at the, we mapped various organisations through the lens of trust. So your point around what you are building is the, the kind of behaviours, the you're, you're basically building, you're, you're, you're manifesting the values you said your organisation should have through your behaviours. And in doing that, you build resilience. Because as you said, you went through it once. Of course, you have you know, The world's never perfect. Things mm. go wrong. But your organization were happy to share with each other. Things go wrong here. Can we help each other out? And then we will share with everyone affected and we'll make right. 
and we see that um, that breeds trust. And then we see that trust organizations outperform the stock market by about two and a half times. Right. Um, and your little example there of Twitter is exactly that because you earn the trust of your employees. You, you then showed each other how you're going to deal with the situation in the future. You made a product that learned out better because of that, which goes back to that ability and that dependability. You demonstrated integrity. And then the response from analysts is probably, this is a company that's leading the way now. Mm. This is a company that can deal with problems when they arise. And they will arise, but they can deal with these problems. Um, so we see that manifesting in real market value too. One of the things in the report, final question I'll ask you, is one of the things that seems to characterise trust is, um, or one of the things that creates a lack of trust is economic downturn. It's like bad yeah. economic circumstances. Do you think if the economy picks up and does that give us hope that trust is going to increase, that optimism will increase and that we'll find ourselves in a better place going forwards? Uh, it no doubt helps. You know, th 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 people's concerns are the same as everyone else, you and I, you know, health, livelihoods, it's at the top of the tree. And so when people feel more secure in livelihoods, often it means they are, often will feel healthier too. Um, so there's no doubt it will shift moods and make people perhaps lean in more to the organisations they're with and the people they see around them. And if things are going well, it maybe gives you a sense that some of the institutions are more competent than I thought. They're able to do what we said they were going to do because we're booming. Things are working. The potholes are filled. Um, so that, that can definitely help. But I think the most important measure is the four levers we've outlined. Yeah. And I think the financial outcomes will be more as a result of those, as in we are building more trust institutions, companies and behaviours with each other, which will lead to growth rather than the growth leading to more trust. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Love it. I find this so fascinating. I'm so grateful yeah. that you've taken the time to talk through. So, no, thanks, great. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks, Bruce. Lovely. 
Thank you, thank, thank you to Mark. Like I say, there's a whole load of stuff that you're going to find in the show notes. And I've called out some of the sort of key points of how we can build trust in our organisations, what trust uh, counts for. Really critical when it comes to thinking about not just organisations, but politics and anything that we might find ourselves part of. Loved it. Loved that discussion. I've got a couple more things before these a sort of a return to normal service with Matthew and Ellen. I've got something where I spent a day in an NHS hospital in Barking last year. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be sharing that. And, uh, this, this is another couple of things. So, um, so thank you for listening. Stay tuned. And as ever, please do share feedback of, of what you've enjoyed and what you'd like to hear more of. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time.